Hi, I'm Shweta Rao, European Head of Europe Covenants. Welcome to Covenant Conversations. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Senior Legal Analyst and Restructuring Specialist, Sean Qureshi. Hi, Sean. How are you? Hi, Shweta. Thanks for having me. I'm great today. Great. So recently in the US, uh, Sertra Simmons, Board Riders and Trimark have consummated controversial up-tier recapitalizations, which have all gone into litigation. The key issue that has arisen in those cases is the consent level required for the injection of super priority debt into the capital structure of a stressed company. This has put a spotlight on the consent levels required for amendments in debt documents to facilitate covenant relief and restructurings. Certain amendments, including those to money terms, and indeed in some cases, amendments required to insert a new tranche of super priority debt can require unanimous consent. Today, Sean and I will talk about the ways an English scheme of arrangement can be used to circumvent the contractual unanimous consent level threshold using the Aircraft Logistics Group Swiss Port as a case study. And we will end with what lessons we can learn from this case. So, Sean, generally it seems that there are two ways in which borrowers can implement amendments, consensual and non-consensual. Can you run us through the differences? Thanks, Shweta, that's right. So, over the last year or so, we've seen debtors' financial restructure before reaching an event of default by amending the terms of their notes or their loans. And this can be done either by obtaining the contractually prescribed consent of their creditors or by using an implementation tool to bypass those consent thresholds. Now, a a consensual amendment, in short, involves amending the obligations or restrictions that a debtor has under its debt documentation with the consent of creditors holding the requisite percentage of outstanding amounts under that debt documentation. Now, the exact percentage required for the amendments will be set out in the specific documentation being amended. Broadly speaking, consensual or contractual amendments tend to be cheaper, faster and reputationally better for the debtor. On the other hand, a non-consensual amendment will utilise a restructuring tool. And in the English law context, this could either be a scheme for arrangement or a Part 26A restructuring plan. The requisite majority in those tools, which is 75% by value and 50% by number of creditors for an English law scheme for arrangement, and 75% by value with no numerosity test for English law Part 26A restructuring plan can be lower than the threshold contractually prescribed in the relevant debt document. Now, considering the lower thresholds in the non-contractual restructurings, this can prove the only option for debtors where securing contractual consent for amendments is not possible, either due to uh, disparate note holdings or note holders or uh, dissenting creditors. Thanks. So to summarize, there are two options open to borrowers, either they can go consensually and use a contractual amendment thresholds, which could be as high as unanimous or 100% consent. But in cases where they feel that they have creditors who would not agree, have minority creditors dissenting, they have the other option of using a non-contractual consent mechanism, which is a scheme of arrangement, or the new super scheme or part 26A restructuring uh, tool. So what are the factors that would play in a borrower's mind, whether it's choosing whether to go the consensual route or the non-consensual route to implement amendments? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And it, it, it's the key question in this area. So, so assuming that 
our borrower is not yet on, in default under its documentation. There's two key factors which determine whether they go down the contractual route or the non-contractual route. Uh, the first of those is the creditor support for the deal. Do they think they have enough support from creditors to get over the contractually, uh, the contractually prescribed uh, consent threshold? And secondly, what is that consent threshold for the amendment sought? So those are the two important uh, factors, and that will determine whether the borrower uses a consensual or a non-consensual route. So if we look more specifically, issues of notes tend to require the, the, the consent of 90% to contractually amend what we refer to as money terms. And the, uh, these are, among other things, terms relating to principal interest and maturity date. Amendments of non-money terms of those notes, such as certain covenants or reporting requirements, those may be undertaken with the consent of just a simple majority of note holders, so that's 50%. And we should clarify that when we talk about notes here, we're talking about notes governed by New York law. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. And then if we look at loan documents, the consent thresholds can be as high as 100% for amendments. And this isn't always a straightforward uh, con consent when you look at both uh, loans and the notes. As a contractual amendment, which is made from one tranche debt, be it a loan or a note, may also need to be approved by other lenders of other tranches of debt and often and, and also reflected in other documents, such as the intercreditor agreement, in order for that to be practically affected. So, for example, if you have a capital structure which has some note tranches and loans, you're likely to have an intercreditor agreement, which is going to govern the relationship between the creditors, between themselves, and the creditor and the debtor. So in order for an amendment to be effective, the rights and obligations which the borrowers have under the loan or notes will also need to be reflected in new inter amended intercreditor agreements. Now, the terms of the relevant intercreditor agreement could also require unanimous lender consent for amendments. Now, the exact position could uh, vary. Before it, uh, the debtor undertakes this process, it will want to assess what kind of creditor consent it has before it uh, uh, undertakes its restructuring. And it can use this to figure out whether it should do a contractual or non-contractual restructuring. And this is typically done by consulting with creditors in advance of their restructuring or, or the amendments that they want to put in place. The, cre the creditors and debtor can enter into a, lock up, into a lock up agreement with uh, supportive creditors across the debtor's capital structure. Once they've entered into the lockup agreement, the creditors will be bound to undertake all relevant steps in order to support the proposed restructuring. And now that will include voting on any consent requests or in any restructuring proceedings. Once the borrower has undertaken these exercises, ascertaining the support it has from creditors and also the required consent thresholds for an amendment, it can then decide which route to take. Thanks. We will clarify for our listeners who are across the Atlantic that the consent threshold in English law senior facilities agreement can vary from the consent thresholds required for similar amendments in New York law credit agreements. And the second point of difference to note for um, lo on the loan side is that the intercreditor agreement, which in European deals is governed by English law generally, is a very important and critical part of the financing documentation for deals done under English law SFAs. Uh, and it might not be the case um, in New York law credit agreements. So those are two key differences uh, depending on yeah. the governing law of your documents. Okay, so to come back to um, the factors which you take into account when you as a borrower deciding whether to go the consensual route or the non-consensual route. Now, it is 
possible that you, if you need unanimous consent, you might not have all your lenders or your bondholders agreeing to give you that 100% or 90% consent as the case may be. So if you don't have adequate creditor support to implement the amendments that you want to or need to make, how can this? How can these amendments be made non-consensually? And what are the advantages of using one of these non-consensual tools? Yeah, exactly. It's a good good question. So if if the debtor gets to the position where it's a contractual restructuring can't be implemented through lack of support from creditors, the company will, as you say, choose to use an implementation tool restructure on a non-contractual basis. Now, what's interesting is that these restructuring tools allow debtors to amend the terms of their debt documentation bypassing those contractually prescribed uh, consent thresholds, uh, which you discussed earlier. Now, crucially, if these tools are successfully used, they will bind all creditors under the debt being amended, regardless of whether or not that creditor consented to the amendment. This is something which is referred to as cram down. The attraction of you know, these restructuring tools, such as the English Law Scheme Arrangement or the Part 26A Restructuring Plan, is that, that requisite, the requisite threshold under these tools is lower than the contractually prescribed threshold in the relevant documentation. As I mentioned earlier, the 75% by value uh, and 50% by number for creditors of creditors under the schemes and 75% by value under Part 26A is lower than the 90% threshold required for many of the money terms under notes. And it's also, of course, lower than the unanimity consent threshold required for certain amendments under loans. There's an interesting... Uh, a difference between the traditional scheme of arrangement and the part the new part 26a restructuring plan and that's whereas the scheme process the traditional scheme requires the requisite consent threshold of every single class voting on the scheme so that's 75 percent by value and 50 percent by number of every class voting on the scheme the part 26a restructuring plan merely requires the consent of at least one class of affected creditor as is subject to fairness tests but what this creates is something that is called to or referred to as cross-class cramdown. So this means that the restructuring or the amendments proposed can be implemented even when there is a dissenting class of creditor who do not approve of it. It's important to note that this Part 26A restructuring plan only became part of uh, English legislature earlier this year. And the cross-class cramdown tool within the Part 26A uh, has not yet been tested in this Part 26A, which is quite a big amendment to legislation in England, is um, being hailed as creating a lot of flexibility for implementing amendments and also carrying out restructuring processes where you might not have all your creditors on your side. What are the processes that a borrower needs to follow for either a scheme or a Part 26A um, are there any jurisdictional hurdles? And also, let's talk about a few examples where we've actually seen borrowers use these schemes and Part 26A uh, schemes. Yeah, exactly. So I think let's let's deal with the types of amendments that we've broadly been, we've broadly seen borrowers use or put in place over the last year or so. So I'd like to class these into three broad categories. Now, the first one is where a, a debtor wants to insert new tranches of senior debt that were previously prohibited into its capital structure. So, for example, if a borrower wants to create a new super senior class of or, or, or tranche of debt, it uses the, the process to do that. 
Secondly, if, if the borrower or, or the debtor wants to amend the maturity day principal, the interest rate payable on its existing borrowings, it can use these tools to do that. And finally, if there's, for example, a, a waiver which the borrower wants or the creditors wish to uh, add extra additional obligations on the issuer, for example, extra reporting requirements, um, that's what we've seen. The, the, these, these are sorts of amendments that we've seen that debtors working with their creditors put in place. Now, we can talk a little bit more at the end of this podcast about a worse example, Twistball, as you mentioned at the beginning. Now, this the second part of the first part of your question, you asked about um, the process. You know, how does this Part 26A restructuring plan and the existing scheme of arrangement work? Now, the scheme of arrangement and Part 26A are both contained in the Companies Act, the English Law 2006 Companies Act. And in terms of process, they work, broadly speaking, in, in the same way. And the, the scheme of arrangement has been used for many, many years. It was, it was, it was in the, 19, the first Companies Act, before the 2006 Companies Act. And the Part 26A plan will rely on the court-developed jurisprudence uh, that was created by the traditional schemes. Now, the availability of either of the English law processes is dependent on a number of factors. Uh, some of them are, for example, uh, referred to jurisdiction. Uh, and the court will look at the location or the, the centre of main interests of the company, often referred to as the COMI. The court will also look at the governing law and the jurisdiction of the finance documents which are being restructured. Now, there's a large body of English common law which provides precedence for when the English courts will exercise jurisdiction and allow the company to use the scheme or the Part 26A uh, plan process. Um, so English courts have sanctioned restructurings where intentional steps have been taken to move the comey of a foreign company to England, or where, for example, the governing law and jurisdiction of finance documents have been amended to English law, and also where an English company has been incorporated solely for the purposes to acceding to debt obligation as a co-obligor. So what that means in practice is you may have, for example, a, a Spanish company, uh, which has New York uh, law governed uh, uh, note indentures. And that Spanish group may decide to incorporate a new English, uh, English uh, located or English incorporated company and uh, structure its uh, notes so that that new English uh, company is a co-obligor under the notes. The group will then uh, reach out to its note holders to amend the governing law and jurisdiction provisions of its notes from New York law to English law. Then when the uh, company comes before the court, those steps it has taken, number one, having an English borrower, and number two, having English uh, uh, law governed debt, will mean that the English court if, has the jurisdiction to, uh, to, to sanction a scheme or a Part 268 plan. Now, if we talk strictly in terms of process, both the scheme and the restructuring plan have two court hearings, a convening hearing and a sanction hearing. The first is the convening hearing. And this is where the debtor proposes the class of creditor that it intends to convene for the purposes of voting on the proposed scheme or restructuring plan. Following the convening hearing, there'll be a creditor's vote. That's where the creditors vote, decide whether or not to vote in favor or against the plan. And as I discussed earlier, the, uh, the, the for, forward planning um, debtor would have already reached out to its creditors and um, arrange for a lockup agreement to be signed. So the requisite amount of uh, creditors should vote in favour of the scheme or the restructuring plan. Uh, following the, the creditors vote, the company will return to the English court for its sanction hearing. Uh, and once sanctioned, the amendments proposed by either the plan or the scheme will be effective and binding on creditors of the classes that have voted on the process.
Thank you for summarizing the processes, the jurisdictional issues, uh, and what kind of amendments debtors have used schemes and Part 26A restructuring plans for. I think this is a good juncture for us to jump into our case study, which is Swissport. Um, it would be really helpful for our listeners if you could tell us what happened in Swissport and how that creates a precedent for us and for borrowers on how to make non-consensual amendments and watch, yeah, watch exactly. out for. Sure. So Swissport um, is, is a really useful precedent for, for borrowers, as you say, how, how to use a scheme and how to implement non-consensual uh, amendments to uh, debt documentation. So Swissport in June of this year, uh, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, required new liquidity to assist uh, in the running of its business operations. The Swiss airport's, uh, the Swiss airport ground handlers debt documentation didn't feature any basket for the incurrence of super senior debt. So what the group did was that it reached, uh, used a combination of uh, contractual and non-contractual restructuring to create a new super senior debt basket. The company required the consent of a simple majority of its senior secured note holders to create a new super senior debt basket and the group therefore reached out to its note holders using a consent solicitation to amend the notes and this was successful. So that's one part of the capital structure, the senior secured notes. They consensually allowed for the creation of a new super senior debt tranche. Now if we look at another part of the group's capital structure, the group's loan documentation and related intercreditor agreement required 100% consent of credit lenders to be amended uh, to allow for the creation of this uh, new super senior debt basket. When the group launched a consent solicitation for its SSNs, as I, I referred to before, it explained that if the required 100% consent level required for contractual, a contractual amendment under the credit facilities and intercreditor agreements was not reached, then the group would instead use a scheme of arrangement to non-contractually implement these amendments for the loan documentation and the inter agreement. On the facts and having launched uh, these consent solicitations, it turns out that the 100% threshold was not, not reached. So the group did as it said it was to, and it used an English law scheme of arrangement to non-contractually amend the loan documentation and inter-creditor agreement uh, that it had. Remembering that the 75% uh, by value and 50% by number consent threshold for the English law scheme was lower than the obviously unanimous threshold required in the documents. The scheme was successful and the uh, amendments implemented. So both the SSN holders, the senior secured note holders and the credit lenders were now able to participate and provide this new super senior funding. However, the group in doing this process had not consulted with its senior unsecured note holders, who obviously ranks junior to both the SSNs and uh, the, the loan agreements. So they weren't, cons they weren't con uh, consulted uh, with respect to the amendments. The company's view at the time, and the reason why it did consult them, was that the consent of the sons was not required to amend the group's intercreditor agreement. The amendments made were later challenged by certain of the Swiss port son holders. Uh, these challenges were made before the New York courts by the Sun holders, and their argument was that they weren't consulted by either a consent solicitation, there wasn't a scheme which amended their contractual rights, and they believed that the amendments required to create the new super senior debt tranche also required the Sun consent under the terms of the intercreditor agreement's waterfall provision. Now, this is all quite complicated, but what this demonstrates to us is that 
Issues can arise when only part of a group's capital structure is amended without the consent of the remaining parts. And this shows how important correct interpretation is of amendment provisions and how also correct interpretation of a group's intercreditor agreement is required. Otherwise, you end up in a situation where you have, um, as Swissport is, you have sun holders who are challenging what you've done. So what does this mean for Swissport now? So Swissport is now attempting a further deeper restructuring, also using a schema arrangement. And this restructuring will include an equitization. However, the outstanding sun challenge could delay the process. There's several uh, factors here, but in theory, there's two possible intercreditor agreements which bind the debtor group. There's the intercreditor agreement as amended by the scheme in June. And then there's unamend the unamended version, which the sons who uh, disagree with the amendment will say is still in place. So if the sun challenge is successful and the purported amendments to the intercreditor agreement were not effective, then the group is likely to have to face extensive delays to its second restructuring. It may have to seek another uh, method to amend its intercreditor agreement. And this, again, as I mentioned, could cause significant delay and further costs. Now, the alternative possibility is that the Sun holders settle with the group. But again, the Sun holders are likely to require some sort of payment to the holders from the company or another terms of settlement. Now, I think it's important to note that the challenges presented in the New York court by the Sun holder demonstrate the issues um, that arise when, when using either consensual or non-consensual amendments. And as I've mentioned before, it's very important to determine the exact consent, consent thresholds required um, when looking to amend uh, a group's capital structure. Thanks, John. That's really informative. It's um, It just brings to light how important consent thresholds and amendments provisions in documents are. They're a key focus area. And also, it's very helpful for investors to know the restructuring options that borrowers might have through schemes of arrangements and Part 26A restructuring plans. And in addition to that, uh, England is not the only jurisdiction which has seen amendments to its restructuring laws to aid restructurings. Uh, Reorg is hosting a webinar on Wednesday, November 25th where we will discuss uh, European forum shopping in 2021, focusing specifically on new Dutch, German and English restructuring tools. We will be joined by partners from Latham & Watkins and Ressor to provide an overview of the new tools and their current status, discuss jurisdictional hurdles and cross-border recognition. Thanks so much, Sean, for participating and having a conversation on this podcast with us today. That's all from us this week and you have a good day.